This week, we have a special Valentine's Day themed episode all about love and money. I chat with my friend, Aaron Lowry, aka Broke Millennial, about having these awkward financial conversations with the people we love. Like what happens if someone earns significantly more than the other person? What do you do about debt? And we talk about the P word, prenup. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing my friend, Erin Lowry, author of Broke Millennial Talks Money. She has recently published her third book, and we're doing a special Valentine's Day episode on love and money and how to get the conversation started around these difficult topics. Erin Lowry is the author of the three-part book, Broke Millennial Series, including Broke Millennial, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, and Broke Millennial Talks Money, scripts, stories, and advice to navigate awkward financial conversations. Her first book was named by MarketWatch as one of the best money books of 2017, and her style is often described as refreshing and conversational. Erin's been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and on the CBS Sunday Morning, CNBC, and The Rachel Ray Show. Welcome. Hello. It's really fun to hear your podcast voice. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad that you enjoy hearing my podcast voice. We have been blogger friends for so long, and just a brief history for listeners. I believe we both started our blogs in 2013, Mm -hmm. which is crazy that that was eight years ago. And It's so amazing to be on this side to think about everything that has happened in the past eight years for both of us, but it's been so wonderful for me to see your rise with Broke Millennial and all of the books and all the amazing things you do. And it's just so amazing to me that we, you know, we're both bloggers at the same time. And here we are eight years later with lots of things under our belt. I know both published authors and I eventually will do a podcast one of these days. <laughs> that's that's yeah, the, long, the long-term plan. But Yay. yeah, it, it is crazy that it's almost been a decade. And it's interesting to you thinking back, there's just a handful of folks that I really, really remember from the jump. And you're one of the very early people that I remember meeting and interacting with, well, really interacting with before meeting. Yeah. This must have been like one of the early conference moments that we got to meet in person. I know. It's so wild. You're one of my first blogger friends. And then we we met and you've spoken at Lola and now you're here on the podcast and it's been such an adventure. So I'm so glad you are here. And you're in the book. I know. Yes, I am in the book. I share uh, all of my tips on how to break up and deal with your finances. So if you want more details on how to deal with that, definitely check out the book. But 
I'm so excited to talk about this book because it is so needed. We all need some scripts and some tools to have these awkward money conversations. As we know, money causes stress, money causes conflict. It's super awkward to talk to someone in your life about these issues, especially when they're not necessarily like us, where they're money nerds. And we're like, let's talk about money. Let's dive into it. You know, there's like the money nerds and then the regular people who are just kind of like, I I don't know if we should uh, talk about money. So, you know, this is the special Valentine's Day episode. So we're digging into all things love and money. And so we're going to go through dating, marriage, all that good stuff. So In your book, you talk about getting financially naked with your partner, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story doing that, and then also, at what point should people be doing that, and how can they broach the subject? I'm going to start with the second part first. The when really does depend, obviously, as is true with all things personal finance, but I would say... The most important, the full frontal financial nudity, as I call it, when you have to bear absolutely everything, when you look at that other person and think, I could end up with you. So whether that to you means marriage, whether that to you means some lifelong commitment, or even just a very long-term commitment, because we're all kind of defining relationships in different forms, when you look at that person and you just think, yeah, you're it. That's when I want you to go through the full frontal financial nudity and share all the things. Now, also, very important to note, all the things do not have to be shared all at once, because sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves to have these conversations where you look at a book like mine or some sort of worksheet, and it's got all these things it tells you to do, and you're just kind of trying to check them all off the list in this convo. This convo is going to get heated. It's going to get emotional. People's feelings might get hurt. You might react in certain ways to things that you're hearing. So it is okay to press pause and walk away and come back or to just have little bits at a time happen over months. It could even be a year or two, depending on your situation. Now for me, this is a classic do as I say, not as I do scenario. Because the (laughs) very first time, trying to even remember. So my husband and I have been married for two years together for 10. and. We had probably been together about a year and I was not even totally at the like, yeah, you're the person I want to marry stage yet. I just was somebody who liked to talk about money and I knew he had student loans, but I didn't know the exact scope. So I just said one night out of the blue, how much do you have in student loan debt? And the reaction wasn't hostile, but it was sort of like, uh, what? Like it was a very, he was blindsided by it. I actually don't think he knew the answer yet at the time mm-hmm. because he was doing, you know, with a lot of, he also graduated. First of all, we're a year apart. I'm a year older, technically a year and a half older, which he thinks is hilarious. When <laughs> I turn, So I'm 31 now, but when I turned 30 and he was still 28, he thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> I did not. And so when he was a then senior in college, I had been out of college for a year. We had been together kind of a year and a half at that point. That's when I was bringing this up. He wasn't even paying on the student loans yet. So he didn't really know what the full scope of the picture was at the time. So that was the first thing is just I really blindsided him and then also talked about something that for a lot of people is a bit sensitive, a bit emotional. And I really should have laid the groundwork, said the conversation was coming, explained why I wanted to know 
like all of those kind of emotional check-ins before I was like, and how much do you have? Yeah, totally. It's like, so how much debt do you have? Just tell me right now. Yeah, I definitely think it's super important to set expectations so people kind of know what's coming. And then, yeah, I think knowing your intention in asking because when people are kind of confronting you about how much debt do you have, then they're suddenly on the defense. Like, are you going to judge me if I tell you the number? Like, are you going to break up with me? Um, Like, what are you going to think of me? And, you know, if I don't know the number, are you going to think differently of me? I think there's so many different things going in the person's head who has to answer to that. Context, context, context. Really, no matter the financial conversation that you're having, so if it's parents, friends, siblings, romantic partner, coworker, context is key. Because otherwise, I mean, there's a few different negatives that can come out if you don't provide context. One, people are left to assume. And let's be honest, we're pretty self-involved creatures by nature. So usually we're going to make the reason about us and not about the other person which I think we can extrapolate to any form of context in our lives on any conversation. But the other thing too, is it just really kind of sets the conversation up for success. You know, I want to know this information because I'm starting to think long-term about building a life together. And I'm starting to think about different financial goals I have and that I want us to have as a couple. So it's just important that we get all this information out there or I have student loans and I'm just curious if you have student loans. Like that could just be the first question, not even how much do you have? Do they exist? Or, hey, I've had credit card debt. Do you have credit card debt? Those are great scripts right there. So anybody listening, feel free to rewind and just write that down. Or even better, get the book. You'll have all the scripts ready for you. I think that's so important to have that period of time in a relationship where you just lay it all out and say, this is where I'm at. You do it in a place without judgment. You do it in a neutral place. You set expectations. You have time. You're ready. That is so key to moving forward. So I want to get into kind of some of the issues around money and couples and something that we've been seeing more recently, especially in the past decade or so, is women making more than men. Um, I want to generalize this, though, and say, you know, how can couples navigate one person far out earning the other? And does it matter? And what type of conversations should be happening? You know, whether it's male and female or same sex, you know, what can be done if someone is making four times what the other person is? I think it was you who has the quote in the book about what is equal isn't always what's fair. Yes. And that to me, (laughs) yes, that to me really, really resonated as just like the perfectly succinct way to surmise this whole conversation because we so often tend, whether it's romance or not, that this idea of splitting something 50 50 makes it automatically a fair thing to do when it comes to money. And two big areas where I see a gap in that are one, exactly what we're talking about here, where different people in a relationship earn different amounts. Or two, when you're thinking about caring for a family member and you as siblings make different amounts or have different demands on your finances and therefore can't contribute the same amounts. So first key thing is talking about that. What do I make? What are the demands on my money? What feels fair? And talking first from that place of what feels good to each party. And I would separately sit down, 
either think about it or even go so far as to write it down and then share it with each other. And then based on if you guys are in two totally different polarized places, how can we start to come to meet in the middle about what feels fair? Personally, I'm always a big fan, particularly if you're not yet married, of talking about the lifestyle expectations and the goals and starting there and working your way back to the actual dollars and cents as opposed to like, hey, I make $300,000 and you make $60,000. So therefore, I'm going to do X, Y, Z and you have to deal with this. That's not fair. Especially if the person who makes $60,000 is maybe paying off debt, whether it's consumer, whether it's student loans, what have you. The other thing is you don't want there to be a mismatch in power dynamics in the relationship with the person who's the bigger earner just gets to unequivocally make certain decisions, especially when it comes to finance. That's absolutely not fair either. Or that the person who is the lower earner is expected to do more in terms of housework. This kind of comes back to particular heteronormative gender stereotypes that we see. Hopefully our generation is starting to reverse them a little bit. Data coming out of the pandemic doesn't have me super hopeful on that one, but maybe as we move forward. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing is sitting down and thinking separately about what feels good and fair, coming together and having a conversation. But I also would really encourage you to, in that time, reflect on what do we as a couple want to achieve? And are we thinking about that as a team? Are we married and we're working as a team or are we not yet married And therefore, if we legally aren't bound to each other, which is really the only reason I'm making the marriage distinction, are we working as a team still? And if we dissolve our relationship, what does that mean? And are we just working kind of as two individuals who are supporting each other? And you do have to be brutally honest with yourselves and each other about all of that. But focusing on your financial goals and how you want to get there is a really good way to start navigating these conversations. And also... Pardon my language, but if you're the higher earner, don't be a dick. Like it also is about that. Really, truly being compassionate to your partner, understanding that earning more does not give you the prerogative to unilaterally make certain decisions. You have to think about what they want as well. And if there's also very, if there are huge gaps in lifestyle expectations, regardless of who is earning what, that's probably going to be the bigger underlying issue. Yeah, it's super important to look at both of the incomes and also the lifestyle goals. I think, you know, in the book, I was talking about my particular situation with my ex long term partner, where, you know, we were both kind of broke the majority of our relationship. And then I started earning significantly more than him about three times more than he was making. And it dawned on me that it wasn't really fair for us to split bills 50 50 anymore, if I was making three times more than him. And so actually, I was the one to bring it up because, you know, I I thought that this isn't right. And also, I had ulterior motives as well. Like, he had student loans at the time, and probably still does. Um, And I wanted him to pay them down, but I didn't want to pay for him. And so I was like, you know what, we can readjust this rent, and I can take on more of that. And hopefully, you will continue to put more towards your student loans, more towards savings, And that was all in alignment with our financial goals together. And it ended up working out. And I think that's something that people need to do together, like whatever the percentage is. Like, I think ours was like, I paid 70% of the rent. He paid 30%. He ended up paying a few more utilities that I didn't pay. And, um, you know, we also, yes, have to talk about domestic labor. Like, will the other person be doing more cooking and cleaning? But that's not 
an expectation. That's not something they have to do just because they earn less. So it's really about being brutally honest with expectations. And like you said, don't be a dick if you earn more. Don't think that that, you know, gives you control over your partner. Don't let that think that you can tell them what to do. Um, That's a surefire way to ruin a relationship, I promise. Um, So definitely work together as a couple and figure out what percentages might work better for you when it comes to rent, when it comes to savings goal, when it comes to different lifestyle factors. And it's also important to check in on what feels good in terms of things like debt payoff and all of that, especially if you get married. Now, legally, somebody else's student loans are not going to become your student loans unless you co-sign on them, but they impact the overall marital ledger. So my case, for instance, I was debt-free when we got married. My husband had about $50,000 worth of student loans, and he's a teacher, I drastically outearn him. My big thing was I want them gone and I want them gone quickly. And he has a higher debt tolerance than I do. So we had to figure out how to reach a middle ground where I felt good about the cadence that we were paying them off, but that it wasn't in lieu of every other lifestyle thing that we are interested in. He's not, it's not that he's a spender, I'm a saver. It's not quite that extreme, but he's definitely better about loosen up a little bit. Let's live life some as opposed to me being like, let's just aggressively save for the future that who knows if we'll get there. Like we're in a pandemic, who knows? And it's been a nice balance because I also listen to him and take his opinion into account. And I don't just steamroll him and make him do things my way. So having that balance can ultimately actually lead to a very fruitful and perhaps evolution of your own emotional relationship with money. I love that. So how did you find kind of a middle ground? I totally resonate with you about like having a a, a lighter debt tolerance. That was me in my previous relationship is he just thought, you know, this is debt. Like everybody has debt, like a lot of people. And because I had shifted my mindset into debt is bad, we need it gone. You know, I was like, ah, so anxious about debt, we got to get it gone. So how did you guys meet in the middle to find something that works for both of you? It was an evolution over literally years, because we started (laughs) this conversation, maybe four years before we even got engaged. And by the time we got married, we had obviously come along a lot further. At the very beginning, he had what I would consider an ownership mentality when it came to his debt, that It was his problem. He was going to take care of it. He didn't want it to be my problem. I definitely understood that at the beginning. I never put a penny towards his debt until the day or two days after we got married. I actually sold an investment and did a lump sum towards it as my kind of demonstration of we are now a team. And thank you. Um, That And it's funny, like everybody reacts differently, right? In my mind... It's not in the extreme because we do have a prenup. It's not in the extreme of like, what's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. We're 100%, not at all autonomous individuals. We just blended into an amorphous blob as a married couple. That's not my feels on it. But he knows I care a ton about money. And that to me, that was a way to like really demonstrate that I have a team mentality about our life as a married couple. And The slow boil, at the very beginning, what we kind of did was talk about, well, the money that goes towards your debt can come out of your paycheck, and my paycheck will cover our day-to-day expenses. So it kind of felt like he had that ownership. 
we ended up as a married couple primarily banking jointly with each of us getting our own spending accounts for allowance. There's no better word for it that I've come up with. But because we did that, it then started to come out of a joint account for debt. So it really helped foster that team mentality. The other thing is I changed my language. Instead of saying your student loans, I started saying our student loans. And that really also helped shift the balance to it feeling like something we were doing as a team. And how some couples save up for a down payment on a house or to have a kid or what have you, this to us did feel like one of the first big things financially that we committed to together as a married couple and was one of our first big financial goals. And I think kind of solidified our relationship to each other. But we didn't do it in lieu of other things we enjoy. We still would take trips. We still would travel. We still went out to eat. It wasn't like total deprivation mode either. Love it. I think that is romantic. And, you know, to each their own, I think couples have to figure out kind of how they want to navigate their financial and life goals together. And it seems like you did that. And I love that you mentioned that it took a lot of time. These things aren't just like one 20-minute conversation and then suddenly you're on the same page and on track. You know, we all evolve over time. Things take time to implement. You know, you waited until you were officially married. I love that you just waited a few days afterwards and you're like, look, I'm all in. Let's go. Let's get this baby gone. Debt-free party. Here we come. So it sounds like you guys are on the same page, which I love. But let's go back and think about, you know, people who are dating. So if people are currently dating, what are some financial red flags that they should be aware of? Oh, I love this because it seems that people always expect financial experts and authors to say like debt. You don't want to see debt. Psh, okay. First of all, if you can find those unicorns, good for you. But the odds that it's somebody that you like want to date that also is totally debt-free and in your demographic in terms of like age and location and what all the other things are on your checklist, if you can find all three of those people, good for you. My feeling is that big part of it is emotional relationship with money. So what are you seeing in the behaviors that that person is expressing in terms of how they spend, how they save, how they invest, how they talk about money, how they won't talk about money? And how does that align with your unique subset of emotional relationships to money? If you're both hyper, hyper, hyper frugal, sure, that can work. But that's also going to mean like a very particular kind of lifestyle. And if you're both big time spenders, yeah, okay, that can work. But that could also mean its own set of trouble. I feel you should try to find somebody who compliments you when it comes to emotional spending patterns and saving patterns with money. Other things you want to look for, abuse around money. So being controlling and manipulative when it comes to money, being withholding when it comes to money, also abuse of finances. If they have debt because something happened in their past and they've created a debt payoff plan and they're working towards paying it off, that to me is not a red flag. If they consistently keep putting themselves in credit card debt, they'll pay it off and then it's back in. They'll pay it off and then it's back in. That's a cycle that's a bit of a red flag. Because the question there is that the debt is more of a symptom of a deeper lying issue. So what's that deeper lying issue? And are they doing anything to address it? I love that distinction. And, you know, I interviewed Ginger Dean on the attachment style episode a couple of months ago, and we were talking about financial red flags as well. And, you know, I think some more of them, you know, she mentioned abuse as well, but there's also financial enabling or being financially dependent. And that can be very tricky in relationships because 
on one hand, you are a team and you do take care of each other. But then at what point does it become financial enabling? Like if someone isn't paying the bills or they won't pay the bills or, you know, you might have some slack for a couple of months and then it's like nothing's changing. And then suddenly you're taking care of this other person. And, you know, those are definitely things to look out for too. Enmeshment is another big one and that you're probably more likely to see between the person you're dating and maybe a family member of theirs. And if obviously there's nothing wrong with somebody supporting a family member financially, but the question becomes, why is that support there? Will it be a long during type of support? How is that going to impact the two of you and your financial life? And none of this should be a deal breaker. There are millions and millions of people who help financially support their family as the adult child. And by that, I mean supporting their parents or grandparents or a sibling. But the question also is, what's the expectation on that person? And is it reasonable with them partnering up with somebody else and perhaps creating their own immediate family? You know, will the parent or sibling or grandparent be okay with an adjustment in how much support is being offered because you've bought a house, had a kid, have to put the kid in daycare. You have different financial obligations at this point. So being able to also navigate those conversations without them turning into big fights, without having resentment between you and perhaps in-laws or you and your partner, those are other things to look out for. I love that you just naturally uh, helped me segue into the next question, which is about money conflicts and money disagreements. So we know that money is a source of conflict in so many relationships and can cause a lot of trouble. So I'm curious, are there specific things that people can say or maybe not say during a money conflict? And how can couples deal with that? Don't hit your person's trigger. That's going to be the first thing I'm going to tell you not to say. We all have triggers. You know it. Your partner knows it. You probably know your partner's trigger. I think the biggest act of love is to not push that button when you're really, really mad at that person and you kind of just want to hurt them. So that's your first step. And the trigger might not necessarily be money related, but you know how you could like tie it in to make it a bigger part of this fight. We've all been there. The big thing I would start with that kept getting reiterated throughout the money, how to fight fair about money chapter, come back to your goals, come back to your goals, come back to your goals. What do the two of you want to achieve? And then this problem that's presenting itself, how is that getting in the way of what you want to achieve? Or how can you maybe adjust the current plan to make it work in some way for everybody? Is that realistic? We've said it already that we're going to grow, we're going to change, we're going to evolve. So really continuing to touch base with what the original goals were, what the two of you wanted as individuals and as a couple, that's really important. Goals that you may have set four or five years ago, that version of yourself might be a very different version than the person you're dealing with today. The other thing to consider when fighting about money, what is your partner's emotional baggage in relationship with money? That is huge to me because I, and I think that should be one of the first things you talk about when you get financially naked is what's your relationship with money? You can ask questions like, how'd you get money growing up? How does money make you feel? What's your first memory of money? If your partner has a very toxic relationship with money or was raised in an environment that was kind of toxic when it came to finances, there are going to be triggers that you don't mean to hit that you're going to hit. And you need to start to identify that 
really me spending this money or making this purchase wasn't so much the problem. It's that they saw this dynamic play out with their parents time and time again, and this is triggering a childhood memory, and that doesn't feel good. This is going to take time, probably years and years and years to get through. I will give you an example from my own life that happened just the other day. We're in the car, and we're planning to move right now, and my husband keeps bringing up where is X going to go in the new apartment? So he will on occasion smoke cigars and he has this very nice cigar box. So where's my cigar box going to go? He's a huge Buffalo Bills fan. He has this one signed photo of the team that I could really live without. And <laughs> yeah. where's, where's my signed Steve Tasker photo going to go? Like all of these questions, I turned in at one point and went, did I ever once in our relationship tell you, you can't have your things? Like, have I ever picked them all up and shoved them into a drawer and been like, don't touch this. You can't have nice things. What trauma happened in your childhood that makes you think I won't let you have your things? And I kind of said that jokingly, but you kind of see the like cogs start to turn. And truly, this is all tied to like sharing a room with his brother growing up and not getting to have necessarily a say in how certain things play out. Like everything ties back to our childhoods at the end of the day. And the same thing with money. And it's really important to understand that about your partner and have compassion and empathy about that with your partner, even when it frustrates a living crap out of you or they keep bringing up the same thing over and over and over. I think that is so important to know the emotional baggage, know the emotional landmines that may come when you bring up certain topics. It is very closely related to our relationship with money, our relationship with parents, our beliefs that we had, the things that have happened in our life. You know, remember, money a lot of times means control and power and respect and values. They mean these deeper things. And so it's not just typically about the money. It can mean so much more. And so being sensitive and compassionate about that is so key. And I definitely recommend if you are in the middle of a heated discussion uh, from my therapy days, uh, definitely don't say you always or you never. That's not recommended. And then also don't be shy to put a time out and say, you know what, we're really heated right now. Let's take a half an hour break and regroup at 3 p.m. You're allowed to do that. And actually, that was something that I learned in couples counseling because, you know, my ex-partner would be someone that would want to push like push me away and just go hide. And I would be like, no, no, I need more contact. I need more contact. Let's figure it out. And so, you know, we had two different ways of trying to approach a fight. And my therapist said, how about you just take a break and you have a time? So you you know you will talk about it and it will be soon, but you have that time to kind of cool off and cool down because we've all been there when we can say things or do things that we regret or we don't mean and that can be a part of the relationship for the rest of your time together. And, you know, unfortunately, those are things that kind of live with the other person or yourself for the whole time. So you really want to be careful of you know, how you approach communication. I do also love the idea of timeouts. And especially when it comes to money, I think that can be a really critical move to make. A funny one I actually overheard one time. I was in a diner and the woman next to me was having a chat with her friend rather loudly. And so naturally I started eavesdropping. And she was talking about when she and her partner get into a fight, she finds it hard to communicate what she's feeling vocally. So they'll go into separate rooms and text each other. 
And I at first was like, well, that's a terrible idea. Like you need to be face-to-face communicating. And I thought back on it later. I'm like, you know, we have different styles of communication. If you think you can best express yourself by writing something down, I don't think every time maybe you want to be separating and texting, but to take that beat, to take that pause and maybe go write out what you're feeling and come back and read it to each other can also be a powerful move. So you make sure that you're expressing yourself the way you want to be expressing yourself. And one of the other tactics I love, no matter what you're fighting about, is what I heard you say is, because sometimes whether it's how you're expressing it or how the person is receiving it, your intended information is not necessarily what they're hearing. And so just having the person say back to you, what I'm hearing is, and express it, because maybe the way they're hearing it is not the way that you intended it to come out. And so making sure that you're actually fighting about the correct thing. Yes, that is so important. Actually, that brings up one of my kind of favorite things to talk about in regards to communication is that the perception of something will always be greater than the intention. So, you know, if person A says something hurtful to person B and person B says, that hurt my feelings, but person A says, oh, but I didn't mean to. Okay, you didn't mean to. That was not the intention, but you can't negate that it hurt person B's feelings. So that's what I mean when I say that the perception of something will always be greater than the intention. And so it's really important to validate someone's feelings, even if it was not your intention. And then I love that, you know, this is what I heard you say, because yeah, sometimes you're misconstruing it in your head and you're totally missing the mark. And then, yeah, you're, you're arguing on different levels about different things and, and you're not finding common ground. So yeah, I think it's important to find that, you know, same level and communicate back to each other. And I love that tip about texting. I think, yeah, I agree with you that it's not something that you should do all the time, but in certain situations, you know, cooling down, writing it down so that you can express yourself in a way that makes sense to you. And you can bring it to the table without, you know, saying things that you might regret later, or you might just shut down. You know, we have different communication styles. So I wanted to talk about, uh, what are some ways that money is important in relationships that people might not think of? Oh, it's a hard one. And I've, I mean, so many are the obvious things of how much are we saving? How much are we spending? But there's a lot of ways that money creeps in, particularly with more of the scarcity slash abundance mindsets that different people have around money that I think plays into issues. So to use sort of a classic couple's cliche of whether or not we're going to have kids and what makes one party feel more comfortable about the situation. One party might feel very much like, let's just have the kid. We'll figure the money thing out. People have been doing this for millennia. It'll work out. And the other person like me might feel like, oh no, I need to have X amount of money saved and or invested in order to feel financially stable enough to have a child because I want to do X, Y, Z things. Both are fine. Like both are reasonable, rational ways to relate to something. But if you're on polar opposite ends of the spectrum, when it comes to certain money mindsets, there's no right answer. To borrow the phrase that Brad Klontz brings up in the book, who's a financial psychologist, this idea of a perpetual problem, that there's not necessarily a solution to this problem because neither one of you is technically wrong nor really technically right. 
just both options exist in the world. And one of you feels one way and one of you feels the other. So the example that he uses is one of you wants to get to the airport two hours early for a flight. The other one wants to get to the airport 50 to 45 minutes ahead of the flight. Well, as long as you board the plane, it's fine. But one way makes one person comfortable and one way makes the other person comfortable. And almost every couple has multiple versions of perpetual fights. And I think a lot of them also come down to money. So we might not be on the surface level talking about finances, but somewhere underneath what we're actually talking about is money and or our either abundance or scarcity mentality when it comes to it. That's such a great point because we are living our life and having our lifestyle through this particular financial framework with these particular financial lenses that we are seeing the world. And yes, we can do a lot of inner work and therapy and coaching, what have you, to try to heal and change some of those mindsets. But sometimes we're just stubborn and we have certain mindsets about things. So I think it's really important to acknowledge that that can happen where money is creeping in in the background with these lifestyle choices. And that was a perfect example where, you know, you think it's like about having kids, but it's really about what's going to happen to our lifestyle, what's going to happen to our money. One person feels like everyone has figured it out. We will too. And I'm definitely with you where I would be like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know. I'm so scared. Like, it's so expensive. And, you know, trying to figure out how you can meet halfway and also understanding that with every decision you make as a couple, money might be there in the background. Um, It also can definitely affect your taxes. I know you mentioned in your book, also student loans, if you're on income driven repayment, um, can also affect insurance, like so many different things. It can. Well, first, I'll say to anybody on income driven repayment plans who are not married and plan to get married, do the math. It might not financially make sense for you to get married yet. There is an example in the book of a couple who decided not to legally get married because of how much it would actually increase both their repayment plans and then also insurance and all of these other, the tax implications. I think they estimate somewhere like half a million dollars long-term, especially with forgiveness on loans, they will have saved themselves by not legally getting married, but then getting all the legal protections, like doing the paperwork to be powers of attorney, advanced healthcare directives, so that they can really have a lot of the legal rights that married couples just kind of automatically inherit by saying, I do. So that is an interesting take to evaluate. I actually read that chapter that you're talking about today about the couple who decided not to get married because it didn't make financial sense. And I so appreciate you including that story in the book because I think so often people are like, but I love you. Let's get married. We'll figure it out. And, you know, I'm a hopeless romantic like anybody, but I'm also a realist and paranoid about money. And I think it's super important for people to realize if we get married and once people are an income-driven repayment plan or the tax situation, if you can save yourself half a million dollars by not getting a piece of paper, I mean, that could be beneficial for both of you in the long run. Think of that money in a savings account or an investment account and how much you can you know, get back on that return. And I love that you have tips on how to make your relationship kind of similar to a marriage from a legal perspective and how you can protect yourself. So I really appreciate you sharing that story because I think that's something that's not shared enough is how couples can navigate a very serious partnership 
maybe perhaps without the legally binding aspect of marriage because of financial reasons. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. And, you know, talking about finances and marriage brings us to the next topic of prenups. Prenups are such a juicy topic. They're a hot topic. People have visceral reactions about prenups. And I know that you're a big prenup advocate. So am I. Tell me why everyone should get a prenup. And, you know, why do you think there's such kind of a stigma around it? The stigma exists because everybody just considers it like a divorce contract and then you are jinxing or putting bad juju or whatever kind of term you want to insert here on your marriage by even saying the word prenup. Like I have actually experienced lowered voices when discussing prenup. <laughs> like, like the P word. <laughs> yeah, truly. And it might as well be called the P word. And for me, there's so many different pitches and spins about why this is important. So here's a sampling of my favorites. First, as my attorney said to me when I was going through the process, everyone has a prenup. It's the default laws of your state. So question one, what are the laws of your state when it comes to dividing assets after marriage? Do you think that those are fair? If you don't, get a prenup to make sure that then it will be divided within reason under the scope of what the two of you feel is fair. I would especially do it if you live in a community property state that's going to default to splitting things 50-50, of which there are nine or 10. So like California and Texas being two of the most notable. Yep, California so, is one of them. Yeah. And it's like no fault, 50-50 down the middle. Doesn't matter what either one of you might have done to each other. Let's go. Also keep in mind that includes debt that was amassed in the marriage. So not what was necessarily brought in, but what was incurred during. The other example is the insurance correlation. So you do not get into your car thinking, I want to get into an accident, so I'm going to have auto insurance. And you don't have homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance because you hope that your house burns down. You have these things in the off chance that something happens. So getting a prenup does not mean that you hope to get divorced or you even that you think you'll get divorced. Like You are not getting behind the wheel of a car thinking, I am going to get into an accident but you recognize that there is a possibility that that could happen. So when it comes to marriage, the very common criticism I get about prenups is that I would never leave my partner. There are myriad reasons this is said. It could be cultural, it could be religious, it could be whatever pressures or internal pressure you're putting on yourself that regardless of what that person does or does to you, you are not going anywhere. Personal prerogative. You cannot control another human being. So maybe you'll never leave, but you cannot prevent your partner from leaving you. Now, I'm not saying that your partner is going to leave you, but it happens. And we, again, in this conversation, multiple times have talked about how much people change over time. The person that you marry in 20 years is not going to be the exact same person. Belief systems might change. Personality traits might change. This is a natural thing that happens. Hopefully, the goal is obviously to grow together, but you don't know. You don't know the person that you're going to be. So it is really important to just acknowledge that at certain points, your love path might end. And this is a whole longer thing. I don't think that means it was a failure. Like if you had a happy marriage for a good chunk of time, and then you realize, hey, we're different people now. We want different things because we've changed as people. That doesn't mean that you failed. 
things just happen and change. We don't look at couples who are non-married who break up and we're like, oh my gosh, you failed. You like failed so hard at that relationship. We don't use that language with them. So I don't understand why we do that to ourselves when you get married or if you get married, like, you failed at this. Listen, things change. People change. It happens. And you don't have to chalk up the last 20 years as any sort of mistake or failure or however long it was. Or maybe you stay married for 50 years and then mazel. But you've paid for a contract that if you look at the premiums over the course of your whole relationship, probably was like $5 a month. And it was there in case you needed it. Just like life insurance. It all ties back, guys. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I think, you know, there is this kind of sunk cost fallacy when it comes to relationship where it's like, I wasted all of this time. But it's like, I had that same feeling when I was dealing with my breakup. That was actually what prevented me from breaking up even earlier is because I had this sunk cost fallacy of like, but I've invested so much time. If I if I leave now that I'm going back to zero. And it's like, no, that's not the case. I didn't just end a nine year relationship and go back to zero. And, you know, when I thought about it rationally, I thought, if I knew what was going to happen, would I do this again? And I would do it again. Even if I knew exactly how it was going to end, I would do the nine years again because I don't regret the nine years because I grew so much during those nine years. We had some fun adventures. And yes, we both changed quite a lot, which ended up, you know, ending the relationship. And like you said, relationships do end. And I think it's really important for people to realize, you know, the statistics, the statistics around divorce are what, like 40 to 50%. I mean, would you really gamble like all of your money on a 50-50 bet? Agree. You know, if, if the, the statistics are that high, I mean, you are really doing both of yourselves a favor. I agree. I also love the point of growth that you brought up. And I feel that that's so much of what happens in relationships is that there is a growth, hopefully positive for sometimes I think for people it's negative, but hopefully you have a positive growth experience with that person that may just reach some form of a natural conclusion. And I don't actually know if I've ever told this story publicly, the funny dichotomy between the fact that I have a prenup I'm super open about having a prenup. My husband and I had together have done interviews about having a prenup inscribed inside our wedding rings as an acronym for the only way out is in a body bag. So that kind of tells <laughs> you the joking difference <laughs> between the seriousness that we take this commitment, but also the reality that we know that hopefully we're together forever because hopefully we continue to grow and evolve in a way that supports and builds the other person up. I even had that in my vows that I hope to I acknowledge that we're going to change and I hope that we evolve together. But you know what? Things can happen. And it's just important to at least voice that and acknowledge that because saying it doesn't mean it's going to manifest into happening and not saying it does not protect you either. You yes. have to acknowledge that that can happen. Such an important point. You know, as I mentioned, the statistics behind it, you just have to look at that carefully. You would not gamble your money if you had those same odds. And also, I mean, just think of everything that's happened in the past year with COVID and politics. I mean, a lot of these things never even engine, entered our imagination. And so, unfortunately, things can happen that we have never even thought of, not to scare people, but those things happen. And so, it's best to be prepared so that 
if and when something were to happen, you are protected as much as possible and not dealing with financial issues on top of grief when it comes to ending a relationship. And my very last plug, the thing that's lovely about the prenup process, first of all, there will be stressful moments. You will get into fights. You will have hypothetical conversations that you don't, it didn't even know existed. But at the end of the day, you are headed down the aisle, full eyes. You know exactly all the information about the other person. They know exactly all the financial information about you. You have had every uncomfortable financial conversation of which you can't even imagine without going through the process. And if you're still walking down that aisle, talk about being on strong footing as a couple. Love that. So I want to end the show on a more positive note. You know, this is going to be released around Valentine's Day. So I think it's also important to acknowledge that we love things about our partner. So I'm curious to know, is there one thing that's money related that Peach does or, you know, kind of a habit that Peach has that you just absolutely love? He cares. I know that sounds so silly, but The man is not a personal finance nerd. I did not marry somebody who's at all in my wheelhouse professionally of what I do. So my first example will be from, oof, it's probably seven to eight years ago. We were taking a road trip and this this knocks how young we were. I could rent the car because I was 25, but he was not yet 25. So like he wasn't allowed (laughs) to drive the rental car. So I was having to drive the whole way. We had gotten lost. We're on like hour seven of this trip. I'm getting so tired and he's trying to keep me awake. And at one point he goes, can you explain a Roth IRA to me and how that works? So I get into like all the nitty gritty of like why you'd pick a Roth IRA over a traditional IRA and blah, 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 blah. Later that week, a couple of days later, I was like, oh, do you still need any other information about like the Roth IRA thing? Like, did you want to open one? He's like, oh, no, I I was just trying to keep you awake. And I knew that you would get excited <laughs> talking about that. Oh, that's so cute. And that to me is like a very good example of personal finance is not his shtick, but he takes a vested interest. So I am certainly the CFO, the chief financial officer of our marriage. But if I say, hey, I want to sit down and have a money conversation with you. He doesn't grumble about it. He sits down and has it. He engages with me. And that to me is just one of like the best acts of love is this is not something that's like top of mind to him. Like money's obviously important, but not in like the way that I care, but he cares because I care. Yeah, I love that. I think, you know, when you can show that you care because the other person cares or you can equally participate and show up in that, that just means so much. So, oh, I highly encourage everyone listening to write a little love letter to your honey and tell them what you love about them, money related or not. So thank you so much for sharing all of this wonderful information. I'm in love with your book. Tell people where they can find you and where they can buy your book. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a ton of fun. And you can find me on Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog, on Twitter at Broke Millennial. The website is BrokeMillennial.com. And any of the books are available wherever books are sold. I'm going to plug here to please support your local bookstores, especially in this time, but also hashtag always. And finally, your local library. And if they don't have it, you can request it. Love that frugal tip right there. If you are in debt or saving and you feel like you can't afford a book, ask the library. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Erin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I loved it. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? 
Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.